going from where you came from, you know, holes, holes in your clothes at the, at school to the Marine Corps, uh, to, to, to Harvard, how, how did that come about? What was your experience like there? Yeah. So let me talk about like the journey there a little bit. Um, I ended up going to nine different colleges on the way to Harvard. So it wasn't like I was a high school dropout, you know, became a grunt and then like went to Harvard the next day. Um, I went to a bunch of different schools. I really enjoyed learning. And, you know, I, I think experience is more valuable than academic learning, right? Like I'd rather be there experiencing it myself than read about the Iraq war in a textbook or something. I, I think that's invaluable. But I also realized that there, there were things that I didn't know I didn't know uh, in the academic world. And the only way for me to know if I was missing out on any like golden, you know, truths or not was to go there and, and do that too. Welcome to the Leading with Vulnerability podcast. I'm your host, Yuma Barnett, and today my guest is John Cobb. And yes, we have another Marine on the show today. I'm starting to get uh, inundated with, uh, with Marines on here, which I think think is awesome. I think Marines and Rangers have a very similar thought process in the way we think about life and, and problems. Uh, John, uh, John has a very unique story and we're going to get into it. But, uh, you know, when I'm looking at my notes here, it says join the Marine Corps with $20 in your pocket. Uh, I got in quotes here, homeless to Harvard, which, uh, you know, um, that's a, the H&H the &H there, that's homeless to Harvard. That I really want, I'm curious about that. And then before we came on air, he told me that he did some time as a police officer as well, uh, which yeah. is also a, an interesting topic, it's not only this day and age, but a lot of service members, when they leave service, a lot of them go into, into law enforcement or are curious about going into law enforcement. But I'm not going to steal all the time here. I'm going to pass it off to, to John and let him introduce himself and we'll get in with the uh, conversation. Yeah, thank you very much. Great to be here. Uh, you know, it's been a crazy ride since I got out. I first signed my contract to join the Marine Corps when I was 17. You know, my parents had to sign a permission slip for me to go to war. Um, that was back in 2004. And then I uh, went to boot camp shortly after I turned 18. And it's been a crazy ride since then. Not, not quite what I expected, but uh, definitely exceeded my expectations in a lot of ways and, and tested me in a lot of ways. So happy to talk through all that. Yeah, and we'll, we'll get in. We'll get into the, the uh, you know, the whole reason for the podcast right up front to just kind of see where you're at in the thought process of, of vulnerability and what it means. So, what is what does vulnerability mean to you? Yeah, I mean, you know, we don't like to be vulnerable. Uh, as coming from hard charging military units, we like to feel invincible. And when I was part of my scout sniper platoon on my second deployment, I mean, you know, we felt invincible. We were in great shape. We were well trained. We trusted each other. We had a tight knit team and we felt like we could do anything, overcome any obstacle, you know, adapt, improvise and overcome, improvise, adapt and overcome. Um, so we like to feel invincible and bulletproof. And I think that's a great mindset to have. But on the other side, you need to lead with some vulnerability. And if people think that uh, you've never had challenges, that, that it's never hard for you, then they're not seeing the realistic picture. You know, they're seeing the Instagram version. And we see so much on social media where everything is polished and filtered and it looks like it's easy for people when in reality, there's a backstory of how hard it was to get where they are and the challenges that they faced. And I think the more that we as veterans are honest about communicating what we faced, what we've been through, how we overcame it, we're gonna help each other move forward and be more successful instead of just pretending like everything was perfect and, and we never had any problems. So. Uh, we all face those 
you know, those mental challenges, those emotional challenges along the way, whether you're in service or out. And uh, it's important that we talk about those to help each other. Yeah, I think you're right. Especially when you're talking about the veteran community, uh, being honest yeah. with each other and, and sharing those, those hard times. It wasn't all, all sunshine and rainbows when you're in uniform. It's definitely not when you get on the other side and it's just good to know that you're not alone and somebody else had some, some struggle out there and it takes a little vulnerability to get out there and, and share that. And I couldn't agree more as we get back looking at your service. So when I look at it here, you know, you went from, you went to boot camp with uh, $20 in your pocket. So what, what led you to the Marine Corps? Um, what, 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 what did service mean to you? What did it mean being in the Marines? If you could just kind of, you know, that's a whole topic in itself talking about your service and in the Marines, but what did it mean to you if you could sum it up for us? Yeah. So, uh, you know, going to high school, I went to a uniform school. It was a free like public charter school, but they had uniforms. So, I was lucky to get great education, but I felt like I was the poorest kid at that school. I don't know if I was or not, but going to a uniform school and like having holes in your clothes can definitely give you a complex. Um, and, you know, the great thing about it though, was that I saw that there were families that were, you know, maybe a little better off than mine. And it started to make me wonder what the difference was between where I was and where they were and how I could get to that next level. So it just made me curious and exposed me to the fact that there are different, you know, tiers of society, if you will, and um, started me, you know, thinking about how I could improve my life in the future. So that's kind of how I got started. Didn't really have any plans for college. You know, my parents had never been to college, so they didn't know how to help me. And, uh, and I missed a lot of school. My, you know, parents couldn't afford gas sometimes. So I, I missed a lot of school, uh, ended up dropping out of high school to work full time to help pay the bills and, and all that. So just, you know, finishing high school to join the military was a bit of a feat. But uh, 2003, you know, we invaded Iraq, the shock and awe campaign. And I remember being at the gym lifting and watching this, this night campaign on uh, night vision for shock and awe and feeling very uh, personally attached to what was going on over there. You know, hearing the stories about Saddam and how, how uh, evil of a dictator he was. Of course, 9-11 happening when I was a freshman in high school. All of these things had an, an impact on me. And I had a sense of duty and uh, the desire to protect the people around me. And so that's really what led me to join the military. I wanted to be a protector. I wanted to serve uh, the people of the United States as well as other countries who were victims of these, these crazy dictators. Yeah, so when you're looking at that, so what specifically drew you to the, to the Marine Corps, to, do you think? Yeah, great question. Uh, I definitely looked at all branches. You know, I, I, I might have ended up being a ranger, but um, Marine Corps recruiter called me back first and filled my head with, with all this talk about how our uniforms are better and, you know, all this stuff. Um, but I, I felt that sense of camaraderie and brotherhood. And um, I wanted to challenge myself to do more with my life, to become a better leader. And part of my plan being 17 years old was, hey, I don't have the discipline to go to college right now. I'm gonna join the Marine Corps. I'm gonna learn some discipline, get the GI Bill, go back to school. I uh, definitely didn't join the military for the money, but I felt like it would help put me on a path. And uh, my plan was to go to school and then become an officer and do a career as a Marine and didn't quite work out that way. Um, but I definitely got the, the discipline part and the perspective. 
Yeah, that's awesome. And I agree. The Marine Corps uniforms do uh, are way better than the Army uniforms. We can't decide what we're going to wear every every two years. It seems like we're changing dress uniforms. And the Marines, all you got the dragons in your commercials and then the slick uniforms and the sword. You could definitely beat the Army out on the marketing. But I had a similar experience. I just had a recruiter that was more aggressive on the Army side. Otherwise, I probably would have joined the Marines Marines as well. So uh, it's yeah, funny, we, it's we funny where life up. takes you. Yeah, we had those cool commercials with like the rock climbing, yeah. the guy Marine climbing the rock and then uh, getting his Eagle Globe and anchor and stuff. And I actually met the person who created those commercials a couple of years ago and uh, found out who it was that like psychologically mind tricked me into joining the Marine Corps over the Army. The Army's got a new campaign, uh, marketing campaign right now, though, that's really good. Yeah, I really like it. And I will say that the camouflage uniforms that the Army has are probably better than the Marine Corps. I really like multicam. You guys are still rolling a multicam, right? Yeah, yeah. So, Finally, we've got know, something that doesn't look like a piece of concrete, you know, with those old AS, <laughs> ACU uniforms. Um, so how, how, how long did you spend in the Marine Corps? So I only spent four years in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was stationed in 29 Palms, which is Mojave Desert, right next to Death Valley. One of the only places on earth hotter than Iraq. And uh, frankly, smells worse too because of uh, this, this lake project they've got going on next door. That's a whole nother story. So stationed in a place that felt like Iraq, went over to Iraq twice while I was in the Marine Corps, uh, first as an infantry saw gunner, and then my second time as part of the scout sniper platoon. And, um, you know, had, had some uh, tough experiences, especially on my first deployment, uh, got extended as part of the Bush surge. And, uh, did my four years and, and got out planning to go to school and then um, come back in, but it didn't happen. So, uh, I mean, when you look back, uh, probably at the time that four years might've felt like an eternity, but looking back now, I'm sure it's like just a blink. It went by in a flash, but I'm sure you still carry a lot of your leadership's lessons learned and everything that you did in the Marine Corps outside into what you're doing now. I just, what impact did service in the Marine Corps have on you as a, as a husband, as a father, as a, as a leader, as an entrepreneur, uh, getting out and, you know, homeless to Harvard, which we'll get in into in a minute. What, what do you, what about the Marine Corps experience just really, really stays with you today? Man, the, the Marine Corps experience shaped who I am. I grew up in the Marine Corps, literally. Um, you know, I'm, I met some incredible people, just seeing people that would do anything for each other, that true, uh, you know, a Marine's Marine. Uh, we say people that would, would, you know, volunteer for every weekend duty so that their buddies could, could take care of business or do what they had to do. Um, you know, leaders who would stand post for you on, on Christmas Eve uh, so you could be with your family, like just some fantastic leaders. Also some leaders that, um, you know, I, I learned some lessons of who I did not want to be from them as well. Of course, there's always that, that one person. Um, but I took those leadership lessons away, the, the selflessness, being a team player, and realizing what you're capable of, how hard you can work, and that it, it really comes down to you and having the motivation and uh, the dedication to keep pushing forward even when things are hard. Anything's overcomeable and anything passes too. There, there were certainly days that felt like years when I was in the Marine Corps, you know, and you think, man, I've got two years left or I've got six months left on this deployment. It's never going to end. Uh, but you realize that it always does. And you've got to make the most of whatever moments you have because it's not going to last forever. So yeah. all, all these experiences had a profound impact on me. Uh, yeah, you know, my 
I have the same experiences with, you know, my 21 years in service. I, I can always look back on those. There's always a deployment or a training event that I can look back on and compare to anything I'm going through now and say, if I can, I can get through, this is nothing compared to what I did, did what I did then. And especially the yep. time and the era that we were deploying as much as we were and, and some of the things we had to see and, and, and do makes, uh, makes life on the other side of uniform you know, seem small sometimes in comparison to, to, to that. And, and I'm thankful for my service for helping you in that. So, so we have it in order. Did you leave the Marines and go into the police force or? So I left the Marine Corps and I went into working with state department as a worldwide personal security specialist. And uh, that was a great transition because it was, you know, a job where I was working with a lot of other military people. I went to Baghdad. It was my first time in Baghdad. And, um, and so I had kind of a smooth transition in terms of a civilian company that was very, you know, pro-military. Everyone I worked with was former military and law enforcement. Uh, so I wasn't dumped right into a purely civilian world, which would have been a harder cultural adjustment. But before I got there, I, you know, went through this period of, of being homeless or living out of my car, um, I left the Marine Corps and thought I had a job lined up and went to the, the training for this job, ended up kind of getting put on a wait list for a few months. And so I, I had nothing else going on. And that's, that's when I kind of, you know, hit rock bottom in a way, if you will. Um, I took this, this stupid department store job and, you know, was, was barely making two cents to rub together. Um, and I was like, what happened to my life? I went from being part of the scout sniper team. And uh, I was also on the Camp Pendleton submission grappling team. So I was doing Brazilian jiu-jitsu as my full-time job for my last six months in the Marine Corps. That was awesome. Um, so I, I was on this tie though. I was an invincible Marine. And then I got out and I was like this nobody by myself working this stupid job, uh, living out of my car. Like what happened to my life? Maybe I should have stayed in. And that was a really tough period to, to realize like I was going to have to reinvent myself. Yeah. And um, it, it took a while to figure things out. When I did my separation class, you know, they basically said, you can either stay in or you can take this job as a truck driver. And uh, the, I think the separation classes and the services and the nonprofits have gotten a lot better since then, you know, skill bridges, fantastic. So many different organizations uh, shift, but that didn't exist. 15 years ago or whenever I got out. Um, so, so that was a tough transition for me. And I, I kind of had to figure it out one step at a time from there. Yeah. And, and talking about your trend transition, cause I had a break in service as well in 2004, I got out and uh, hated every minute of it. And, and, you know, I came back in and the rest is history for my career, but I just had a hard time just adjusting to the people on the outside. I couldn't, like you say, there probably weren't a lot of jujitsu guys in the department store that you're working, working in there that had been through his hard things. So uh, what was it that helped you get through those challenging times up on separation when you're, you know, you, you have doubt if you did the right thing. Um, you, you don't know exactly where you're, where the road's taking you. Um, just uncertainty is not fun, especially when you come from the military where everything's on a calendar and you follow a battle rhythm and you kind of know what you're going to do. Um, how did you adjust to that? How did you, how did you climb out of that hole? Yeah. Um, the, the, the people in the mindset is so different. You know, I remember I had a, 
a boss who almost had a mental breakdown because we didn't have page numbers on this uh, this PowerPoint deck we printed out before a presentation. And I was like, this is the most insignificant thing in the world, like, and you can't handle it. So stuff like that was tough for me. Um, and I had to learn to be more emotionally intelligent about dealing with people who had a different background. And, you know, my perspective was, hey, we're not getting shot at. Like I ate today, I had AC, life is good. And um, they, they had a different perspective. So I had to adapt to their mindset a little bit and learn how to do things, you know, the civilian way, but also maintain my strength and my perspective from the military. So uh, I think that was, that was something I had to learn. In terms of, you know, finding myself, I had to find my tribe. And uh, that's the real psychological challenge when you get out of the military. You've got a tribe, you're part of a community, you know where you belong, right? You've got rank on your collar or whatever. Um, so you know exactly how you fit in. And in the civilian world, you've got to find your tribe too, whether it's going to a jujitsu gym or a CrossFit gym or, you know, staying in the reserves, maybe uh, working for a company that has a similar culture, like a, a defense contractor, find a way to stay plugged into your community, um, whatever sport you're into, wh whatever it is. Maybe it's just, you know, being part of your neighborhood community, but get connected with people. Don't do it by yourself. That's the biggest thing. I transitioned and I tried to do everything by myself and I um, went through the school of hard knocks first because of that when I could have learned a lot more by reaching out to other veterans you know through LinkedIn or whatever and uh, hitting them up and, and learning from them instead of trying to find the answer to those challenges on my own. Man, you're hitting the nail on the head right there of finding, finding your tribe and finding your people. And I'll be honest, I'm still struggling to do that. You know, after as long as I spent in the military, uh, trying to relate to the other dads at the football games is, is challenging, right? Because we don't have any any similar experiences in life other than our kids play football together. You know, so that it, it's difficult. And I think you're right. Uh, even I'm guilty of it. You know, I'm never going to go back on base again. I don't want to do that. Well, I. Don't, don't I, you know, I might've self-selected out of that too soon because that's kind of where the tribe is. Right. So, uh, I, you gotta have pe people. That's what, that's what you need in life. You need people. And you mentioned, you know, your own emotional intelligence. I'm just curious. I'm, I'm a huge fan of cultivating your emotional intelligence and everything starts with understanding who you are, who your val what your values are. How did you kind of cultivate and translate and work on your emotional intelligence without the Marine Corps? Yeah, um, that's a great question. I, you know, I read as much as I could. I, I read not just books, but articles online. Um, I read about military to uh, business school transitions and um, started talking to more people eventually, especially going to business school and connecting with other veterans there and uh, getting feedback from what their journey has been like. And uh you know, doing practice interviews with some people, um, getting, getting some feedback on my resume. Like it took me a long time to realize that I needed to do those things. Uh, you know, the first time I applied to a few schools, I didn't have anyone look at my application. And um, luckily I, I got into a good, great school and, and it worked out, but uh, it would have been a lot better if I had people helping me every step of the way. So start reaching out, start asking for feedback you know, don't just say, what can I do better? Like be as specific as possible. Like this paragraph right here, you know, what can I fix in this sentence and things like that? Um, and uh, 
that's a, a great way to gain self-awareness, but you've, you've got to build those relationships and be very proactive about seeking feedback from people. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, I think you're spot on. One of the biggest things for me that kind of, you know, the last four years before I transitioned was reading books, uh, you know, reading books on leadership. Um, and it's not that I didn't know what was in those books, like I already know it, it's, but I didn't know the language in civilian terms. So reading all those books by John yep. Maxwell and uh, other leaders out there helped me translate what I was doing in the military into civilian speak so I could hold more intelligent conversations with people on the, uh, on the other side of the uniform. Uh, and yeah. just the space that my, that my mind is, and I think a lot of A-typers mind is when you're in a reading a book um, and you're more than reading, you're analyzing and you're thinking about things it really just is a, it's like a therapeutic thing for me and I know it's like that for a lot of former you know military folks when they get in there and they really start start cultivating that emotional intelligence another thing you mentioned the, the police officer thing um, he said you know when you were getting out it was you could go be a truck driver which I remember those days when I got out in 04 that if you were an infantry guy a combat arms guy you were you were going to go be police officer or you were going to go be you know, a truck driver or a dock worker or, or something like that. And like you said, it is, it has changed a lot, but your experience as a police officer, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about going into the police force uh, on both sides, you know, pros and cons. I just kind of like to know you, your experience in that, because obviously you're still not doing it. So you, you moved on from that. I'd yep. be curious as to why, but if you could just go into that a little bit. Yeah. So, so let me say first, like I, I don't know if I, you know, just had like an arrogance that I felt like I could do anything that Marine Corps mindset or military mindset, you know, improvise, adapt, overcome. Like I felt like if I wanted to um, go to Harvard, like I could, I could make that happen. And I wanted to, I wanted to see if it was possible. One of my favorite quotes by Nathaniel Hawthorne is families are always rising and falling in America. And I believe that we live in a country of opportunity and a time of opportunity. And I wanted to see what was possible. You know, could I go from high school dropout to to being an entrepreneur uh, and providing a better life for my kids? What was possible? And so I was kind of on this like scientific journey to like test everything and see what I could achieve. And because of that, I took risks that I might not have taken otherwise. Um, you know, like years before I got into Harvard, I flew there and I met with some random vets there and applied and like didn't get in. Um, but that, that helped me understand the process and just move down that road. So, you know, I was constantly testing what was possible and I, I didn't want to settle. I wanted to keep growing in my life. So I ended up going back to, um, Baghdad and I worked in Israel for a while with the state department, uh, did four, four tours over there, if you will, um, after leaving the Marine Corps. So six, six times over to the Middle East. And then applied to a police department. Um, they had almost a thousand applicants. I ended up getting ranked number one. So, you know, I was kind of flattered that they appreciated me. Because uh, when you leave the military and you go to a place like a department store, like nobody's going to appreciate your talents, right? Your strengths as a combat veteran are, are not what they're looking for. They're like more of a liability <laughs> to, to the company. So, you know, the police department like ranked me number one. I had good interviews. I did well on the written tests. And I was like, man, this is a place where I could really thrive and kind of um, self-actualize and reach my potential. And so 
Uh, I decided to join this, this police department. Um, they sponsored me to go through the academy here in California, seven month academy. And just having a, a military background, like helped me so much. I mean, I already knew how to march, you know, and like the group PT was, was really tough. We did some three hour beatdown sessions. Um, but I was, I was used to it. I had the right mindset going into it. So I'd say, especially during the academy, having that military discipline and experience really helped me. And I ended up winning the PT award for my class. I graduated uh, as the outstanding graduate at the top of my class. I just had like a very positive academy experience. I went to the Orange County Sheriff's Academy, which is in Tustin, California. Fantastic professional staff. Uh, learned so much about law enforcement and even tactics. And um, can't say enough good things about that experience. When I went to my department after that, you know, it was kind of, kind of different than when you're in the schoolhouse, right? And the department that said, hey, we're a family, um, we take care of each other, really felt like their priority was on work at the expense of my family. So my wife was pregnant with our second kid while I went through the academy. She ended up going into labor like the day after I graduated, which was pretty funny. Maybe, I don't know, maybe the stress from me being in the academy like going away uh, made her go into labor or whatever. But um, had my kid and uh, they didn't want me to take any time off. I wish that I had taken more time off. I ended up taking like a week off. Um, so that was tough for my family. Ended up upsetting like both the department and my family. Uh, but I, I'd say police work is similar to the military, but it's more hands-on on a daily basis. And I think it's the toughest job in the world. I've got all the respect in the world for police officers out there. Because um, you have the civil liability. You know, you can get sued by people you arrest. You have the, the physical uh, risk, uh, work can follow you home and things like that. And especially in the climate that we're in now, it's, it's really challenging. So, um, this country needs great police officers. It needs people with military experience and that are very tactically sound. And, um, it's a great job in a lot of ways, but, um, just be careful, make sure you join the right department and realize that it's not going to be exactly the same as being in the military. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. You just got to do your research like anything. Uh, um, it's, 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 it's similar but different to the military, right? It, uh, and you can't just wait out the next commander, right? You can't, you know, 24 months and you've got a new first sergeant coming in, a new commander and everything's going to change. You might be stuck with the same leadership for a, a career, you know, and that's really going to affect, affect your life. What, um, what was it that made you transition out of, out of police work? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I loved being able to help people very hands-on, like being the first person there when somebody's having a heart attack or they OD or, you know, they, they just got beat up. Like, I love the ability to help people when it mattered most. Um, that, that's something that I think is incredible about being a first responder in general, not just a police officer, right? Uh, police, fire, EMS, all that. Um, the tough part for me was just the culture of the department that I was with. And, um, you know, I, maybe I had a chip on my shoulder, but I felt like, like I knew things, maybe I was, I was more tactically sound than some of my training officers. And so it just, it wasn't a good fit. Yeah. And, um, so I, I thought about moving on to a different department, ended up getting accepted into a program at Stanford, um, and did this graduate certificate program in international security at Stanford. So I left the, the police world, um, did this 
six month program at Stanford. And that's right when ISIS was kicking off. So I kind of had this choice, like, am I going to go back, you know, into the, um, the shooter world, the, you know, military law enforcement world, or am I going to stay kind of more as a civilian? Um, but ISIS kicked off. I had the opportunity to go back over with the State Department and did two rotations in Erbil, Kurdistan, where I was training the uh, Kurdish diplomatic security. Um, pretty, you know, I think it's like 30 miles from Mosul, which uh, was kind of an ISIS stronghold at that time. So, you know, again, I like, I felt that call of duty. Um, things are burning down overseas. I want to be there to help as much as I can. And so I went back and, and did a couple of rotations there. Um, uh, I mean, you just, you seem like you just kind of have a, a heart and a head for service, right? You just, and, it, and it's awesome that our people are like that, like you are out there. And as we kind of transition from your, your military service and time, just a question I, I ask of a lot of the, the guests on here, what, what was your most uh, challenging day while you were in uniform or even out of uniform when you were working with the state department? Uh, I mean, the, the most challenging days in uniform were, were losing my buddies on my first deployment, um, you know, hidden, hidden IDs. We found dozens of IDs on my first deployment. Um, I, th I think it was like 150 or something. And uh, the days that I lost buddies, you know, were, were really tough. Um, getting out of the military, I was so there's this day where I was living out of my car, right? and went to my dead end job and i was i was driving um after this dead end job shift and i was like what happened to my life you know and just like in this pretty depressed state not not clinical depression whatever but um just like wondering where my life took a wrong turn and i was so out of it that i ended up crashing my car <laughs> so i was like great i'm living out of my car right now and i just totaled it um, this is rock bottom. So that was probably my worst day, you know, in the civilian world. Um, and then, uh, man, fast forward, like having kids and, you know, being unemployed, not knowing where your next paycheck is going to come from and like worrying about how you're going to take care of your kids. That's a whole different type of stress when you have a family, yeah. but, um, you know, you just get to work and solve the problem and, and, uh, things work out. Yeah. And then on the flip side of that coin, what was the, what was your best day or what was, was there a certain day or mission or homecoming that you, you just think about often uh, from back in those days? Yeah. I mean, I have, I have very clear mental images of coming back from my seventh and eighth trips overseas to the Middle East. And uh, you know, my kids running towards me in the airport and um, as much as I wanted to, keep going to developing countries and, you know, being in the military world. And I, I still do, um, you know, being able to be here and be with my kids and um, be part of their daily routine and put them to bed at night and like help them get ready for school in the morning. Like that's something that, that uh, I wouldn't trade for anything. So man, that's been such a blessing. Yeah. Uh, I have very similar, similar feelings to that. Uh, when you when we were talking about you as a police officer, you know, and you left, you, you were some problems, you know, you didn't seem you could fit in. Maybe the culture was there. And a, 
let's talk about education a little bit because when I think about Marines and Rangers and uh, operators and, and Ivy League institutions, I just don't see them going together. It wasn't until later in my career that I started, you know, talking to officers more about their their education past and to NCOs and you know Columbia and Yale and Harvard and and Emory and 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 I didn't realize the level of education that some of these people had went to. Um, what was your experience at Harvard? Um, was it hard to fit in there? Uh, just what was it like being going from where you came from? You know, holes holes in your clothes at the at school to the Marine Corps. Uh, to, to, to Harvard. How, how did that come about? What was your experience like there? Yeah. So let me talk about like the journey there a little bit. Um, I ended up going to nine different colleges on the way to Harvard. So it wasn't like I was a high school dropout, you know, b- became a grunt and then like went to Harvard the next day. Um, I went to a bunch of different schools. I really enjoyed learning. And, you know, I, I think experience is more valuable than academic learning, right? Like I'd rather be there experiencing it myself than read about the Iraq war in a textbook or something. I, I think that's invaluable. But I also realized that there, there were things that I didn't know I didn't know uh, in the academic world. And the only way for me to know if I was missing out on any like golden you know, truths or not was to go there and, and do that too. And so I started at a community college, um, Ironically, the first college I ever went to, I was taking distance learning classes while I was in Iraq on my second deployment and like paper mailing my assignments back. So it was like two months for my professor to get my math assignment and then, you know, like a month for me to get my corrected version or whatever. It was, it was almost a complete waste of time, but I was chipping away at my first degree. And that just goes back to what you said about, about boot camp and how everything eventually ends and realizing that you know, if you're going from, from meal to meal and day to day and exercise to exercise, like each day is going to fly by this too shall pass. And so that's the approach that I took to my college education. You just keep chipping away and eventually you're going to get momentum. There's going to be a tipping point and you're going to finish whatever you start. And so it took me, I think like eight years from the time I graduated from high school to finish my bachelor's degree. But then in the next eight years, I finished two graduate certificates, two master's degrees, got certified in PMP, uh, project management, professional, all this other stuff. And so if you keep chipping away, like you're going to get better and better and gain momentum. So I went up this ladder from community colleges to Vanguard, where I got my undergrad, uh, very military supportive school. It's a a small Christian school in Southern California, uh, Vanguard University. And ended up doing well there, got a 4.0 there. And that opened up other doors. You know, so I did my, my graduate certificate program at Stanford, uh, took a class at Berkeley, ended up getting into Vanderbilt. They had a yellow ribbon program with the GI Bill. I basically got to go there and do my MBA for free. So that was great. And then that led to me going to Deloitte Consulting, um, which was a great opportunity, very military-friendly company again. And my experience at Deloitte helped me get into uh, the Harvard Kennedy School, and I was a veteran fellow there. I was the first year for the Black Family Veteran um, Fellowship through the Harvard Center for Public Leadership. So every year they pick 25 veterans from across Harvard Business School, Harvard Law School, and the Harvard Kennedy School of Government to be part of the uh, Black Family Veteran Fellowship. And for anybody interested, um, 
and going to one of those grad schools at Harvard, I highly recommend applying. Fantastic leadership development program there. But, you know, I, I went up this ladder where I improved, I learned, I padded my resume, I learned the lingo, I gained skill sets one step at a time uh, to get where I wanted to go. And then all of that experience helped me now as an entrepreneur. But it's not like it happens overnight. You know, if you want to get from A to Z, you've got to go through the whole alphabet first. Yeah. So what, what would you say to somebody, you know, out there that's and maybe in the finishing their first enlistment and they're, they're, they're listening and they're thinking you're saying you're saying some big names. You're saying Stanford, Vanderbilt, uh, Harvard, uh, even the PMP alone is not an easy task to accomplish and, and get that cert. If they have doubt about what they can do or if they can't, won't fit in in that in that group of people, um, what would you say to them? Yeah, you know, I think anything that you've never done before sounds challenging. Um, and then once you get there and you do it, you figure it out one step at a time. I mean, that that's all it is. That's all anybody does. That's what Elon Musk did to build his companies. That's what Jeff Bezos did. Like you figure out one piece at a time and you have the faith to keep going. And you don't have to see the big picture. You don't have to understand how all of it's going to work out. You just need to see the next step and take that next step. Um, you know, so like for me, uh, I, I had no idea what was possible or what was going to come next. Um, but you just take the next step in faith and you realize that these things are not as crazy to achieve as you might've thought initially. So I'll give you an example, the PMP exam, you know, you have to have a certain number of, uh, hours or years of project management experience in order to even like be eligible to take the exam. But once you meet those requirements, the exam is actually pretty easy. And there's a book on Amazon called PMP Exam Simplified. Uh, highly recommend that. Makes it really easy, Barney style for us crayon eaters in the Marine Corps. Grunt style. Uh, yeah. yeah, grunt style. I mean, su super simple. You know, you memorize a few definitions. Um, then the test is going to ask you, like, the project is behind schedule and over budget. Whose fault is it? It's your fault. You're the project manager. Um, so like you, you read the book, you study the book, you take the test. And I think the, the threshold to get PMP certified is only to get like 60 or 70% um, on the exam. But people build it up in their minds and like, man, getting a PMP, like it's impossible. It's not impossible. Just like going through like, you know, Ranger school, I'm sure, or uh, the scout sniper indoc that I did, or, you know, special forces assessment and selection, like people treat it like it's impossible, but there are people succeeding at it every day. It's not impossible. It might not be easy. You know, 90% of people might drop out along the way, um, but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. And I think that 10% is, is pretty good odds. You take 10 shots on goal, uh, you get one of those, you know, that could be your ride, your ticket. So don't, don't build things up in your mind. And in full disclosure, the Stanford program that I did basically has like a hundred percent acceptance rate, right? People are like, oh, you did a program at Stanford. Like that must've been like a 3% selection rate. Like um, you must've been cream of the crop, you know, like God and lucky to get into that program. No, like it's, it's an open uh, graduate certificate program. So most of the people who apply are going to get into that. It's an online program, but um you just got to like do your research, look into these programs 
and take your shot. Yeah. That's what I tell people. I said, just don't self-select out. Make somebody else tell yeah. you that you can't get there or maybe get there and you, you just can't, you can't hack it, but don't automatically self-select out of something, especially people that come from the, you know, the Marine Corps, or the military, you can, it's, it's, it's just work. You just put in work and you people like us are, we're good at doing that. We're just good. And, and we don't like failing when we get into something like that. We usually put our nose down and get through it. So you go, and then you also went into the consulting realm, which is also another big, you know, that's, there's a lot of good and bad with consulting. I, I know a lot of people that are working in consulting in some of the big consulting firms. Uh, some love it. Yeah. So, some hate it. Um, what, what was your experience in the consulting world? So I interviewed with some other veterans who did not get selected because they didn't smile enough in their interviews. Um, so it's not, it's not like a, you know, a promotion board in the military. Uh, people want to know that you can have a pleasant professional conversation with someone in a somewhat stressful environment. Uh, most interviewers are not there to stress you out, but of course it's an interview. So you might be stressed, right? but you're just having a professional conversation with someone. So uh, don't forget to smile. That's my first piece of advice for vets. Um, Deloitte's a very military friendly company and I was part of their government and public sector. So, you know, I was at Vanderbilt and one of the reasons I went to Vanderbilt is because they had a relationship with Deloitte and uh, I knew it was a great company, very collaborative and would help me become the type of leader that I wanted to be. So, um, I went to Vanderbilt, talked to Deloitte, and they said, it's great that you want to work for our government practice, but we only hire for our private sector practice through Vanderbilt. And I was like, but I did this Stanford graduate certificate program. I was in the Marine Corps. You're like, I, I fit in the government world for consulting. And they're like, that's great, but it's impossible. So me being, you know, stubborn, I just kept pushing down that road. Um, and I did my interviews for the private sector. And eventually they came back to me and said, you know, you'd be a great fit for our public sector practice. And I was like, yeah, I know. That's what I've been saying for months. Um, so, you know, people will tell you things are impossible. It just means that they haven't done it or it's not like the perfectly paved road, but you can get from anywhere to anywhere. You've just got to, you know, push hard and keep going. So I ended up doing 10 interviews uh, half behavioral interviews, half case interviews, one group interview, and passed all 10 of those interviews, ended up getting a summer associate internship with Deloitte in their government practice. Um, and then uh, eight weeks there, got a full-time offer, started full-time after my second year of business school. Deloitte paid for my second year of tuition um, above and beyond my GI Bill. So that was great. I got to pocket that cash. But uh, ended up working for the Pentagon on the $10 billion JEDI project with Deloitte. And um, that was a great experience. But so, you know, consulting in general, like you're going to be part of a small team. You're going to be uh, inserted into a company, might be a hostile environment, might be non-permissive. Uh, non and you're going to have to solve problems and improvise, adapt, and overcome. You're not going to have all the answers. Um I got put in charge of leading a ServiceNow implementation. Like, I didn't even know what ServiceNow was, you know, like, they're like, oh, it's an ERP. I was like, okay, what's an ERP? Um, so, or ERM, but uh, 
you, you figure it out along the way. You're part of this small team. So you could, you could think about it in that spe- special operations sense. Like you are the elite commando going into businesses, you know, as a consultant, but sometimes the hours are really hard. Some consultants travel a lot. I never had to travel because I was part of the government practice, which is part of why I wanted to go there. Uh, I've been a consultant since 2017. So like five years and I've never actually had to fly to, uh, to meet a client on site. They've all been local for me, luckily. So, you know, experiences vary widely, but it's an amazing opportunity for your career overall. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome. So the travel, the, everything that comes along with consulting sometimes, what are some of the misconceptions that you think veterans have about consulting before they go into it that uh, aren't necessarily true other than the travel and the super long hours, or is those the main two? Um, I think in general, people feel like the better company they work for, the worse the culture and the environment and the work-life balance are going to be. And, you know, like I, I meet people who think that everyone at Google works like 120 hours a week. Like they have free food and they've got nap pods so that you're trapped there and you never go home. And I mean, I mean, there's some truth to that. Like there are probably some tech teams that are working really hard hours at Google. I'm sure there are people working really hard. I've also visited Google and talked to people that are like, I only work like two, two days a week, you know, and nobody, nobody cares. Like they don't feel like I'm slacking. Like I just got promoted. Um, so as you move up kind of this, this hierarchy of like brand with companies, sometimes the work-life balance is actually a lot better. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Like just because you have a power career doesn't mean that you're going to sacrifice your family. Um, you can do it all. You just have to do it all, yeah. as one of my buddies says. And it's the same thing with school, right? Like I didn't know how I was going to pay for Harvard. I was afraid I was going to get in and not be able to afford it and have to turn it down. And that would have been really, really tough. But I ended up getting a full ride. And so of these nine colleges that I went to, the higher up I moved in brand, the less I paid. Like I went to Vanderbilt for free with my GI Bill. And then I went to Harvard for free with this fellowship. And they paid me a living stipend uh, for my expenses to go there. And so I think a lot of people, again, self-select out because they're like, man, if I apply to this Ivy League school, or this great school, I'm not going to be able to afford it. When actually doors are going to open, things are going to work out. And the higher you aim, you might be surprised that your work-life balance is better at a top company. Um, you're going to work with more professional people and things, things might be much better than you thought. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of what I think a misperception is. Uh, yeah. So uh, talk about the entrepreneur route, right? Cause I think personally, a lot of veterans, especially, you know, from Marine Corps community, combat arms, special operations are, would be very good in the entrepreneur realm. Again, it's, it's self-selecting out it's fear, you know, of taking out a, a business loan, but I think it's just kind of in our nature to go in figure out problems. Uh, and on the entrepreneur route, you kind of get to do it on your own terms instead of on the commander's terms or the, the leadership's terms. What have, yeah. what have you learned about, you know, being an entrepreneur, learned about yourself doing the entrepreneurial stuff? Uh, just what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I've been working for myself full time now for a couple of years. Um, I was an entrepreneur long before that, you know, working on different business models, playing with different things. And I think that p- 
people think it takes $100,000 or $500,000 to start a business. It definitely doesn't. Um, the thing I'm working on right now is an app called the Job Search Bootcamp. And the first time I built an app, it cost me $60,000 out of pocket and uh, took months and months. This app cost me less than $1,000, took me three months, and I'm launching it in the next couple of weeks. So, um, you know, you learn along the way, you get better and better at things over time and you find cheaper ways to do things. But being an entrepreneur um, is a, a mindset and a calling and a lifestyle, not just a career. So that, that's the first thing I say. Um, job search bootcamp. It's a step-by-step guide to help people land better jobs faster. It's an audio course with exercises. And I think it'll be really helpful for a lot of veterans to, you know, understand the civilian world, prepare their resume, prepare for interviews, understand how to network, like all this stuff that I didn't do along the way that I wish I had done. Uh, I learned the hard way and I want to save other people from that, that pain and, uh, the setbacks in their career. So I put everything together that I was using to help people one-on-one in coaching sessions as a career coach and life coach and put it into this program to help people. Uh, So real excited about that coming out. But, you know, being an entrepreneur, you've got to learn how to test things. Uh, What's the smallest way that I could test my idea? That's like, that's what people need to be asking. As, As a veteran, you want to do things perfectly. You want to do things as well as you can. And people have this insecurity. They don't want to roll out you know, a product or a service that's not perfect. But as an entrepreneur, like you have to test things incrementally um, and do these experiments that are low risk. And it's just like starting a podcast. Like if you wait until you have you know, the opportunity to have, I don't know, to be on Joe Rogan's podcast or to have him on your podcast, like it might never happen. You've got to start small and build from there. That, I think that's the most important thing for entrepreneurs. And then, you know, get plugged in. Don't do it by yourself. Go through the Y Combinator startup school. I can't um, recommend that enough. It's a completely free program. You meet for these weekly sessions. You listen to some videos um, to get training and you get certified through the Y Combinator startup school. And um, that's a great place to start if you're interested. Also, uh, Bunker Labs has great programs for veterans. Um if you're interested in going the entrepreneur route after service. Yeah. Thank you, Nell. You just, you got to initiate movement. It's no different than the military. You can sit around and plan until you're, you know, you're blue in the face, but until you initiate movement and make first contact, uh, you never know what's going to happen. But I just know so many veterans that never do, they never initiate movement. They just, uh, they stay in that idea space forever. And, uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, you know, it's fear and they don't want to be vulnerable with themselves and others to do it. So you're going to have to step out of your comfort zone. Like, as the CEO of a startup, you have to do everything yourself. You have to be the relationship builder, the salesperson. Uh, that's the number one thing. Like, get learn how to sell if you want to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Because you're not going to be able to hire a director of sales for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so learn how to sell. See what other veterans have done. You know, Nick Bear and uh, BPN, uh, Performance Nutrition. Like, fantastic story. Yeah. Um, I, I always tell people to read uh, Hamilton, which is a fantastic veteran story as well, uh, although he, he was less of an entrepreneur. Um, but um, yeah, like get plugged in, hear people's stories and and learn about all these different aspects of the business, marketing, all that. Yeah. Um, so aside from your 
you know, everything you've done, you're currently doing, you're also a husband and a father of four daughters, right? Four daughters. Yeah. God bless you. Okay. <laughs> um, so how does family play a role in your life? And then the real question, you know, I'm curious about is like work-life balance when you, you're a busy guy, you're a high, high motor type person. How do you, how do you try to achieve or pursue that, that balance in your, in your personal life? Yeah. I mean, it's tough. Um, I get to work from home now, which is nice, but it's also challenging to have the kids here and, and you know, they don't understand why I can't come play and they want to come bug me. Um, surprised they haven't come in while we're chatting, but you have to like set some really healthy boundaries in your life. And I don't think that people are taught how to do that in the military. Like the military culture is you do whatever your commanding officer um, or your team leader, whatever tells you to do, right? And you say, Roger that. Um, you have to find a healthy way to negotiate and communicate and manage up. Managing up is something I talk about a lot. So, you know, let's say I'm working for a client and they've got 10 projects that I'm working on and they want, to, they want me to work on two more. Instead of saying, no, I can't handle that or sure, whatever you want, I'll say, that's great. I think these are really important. However, I'm focused on A, B, and C right now. I want to make sure we get those across the finish line uh, so that we can wrap them up and everybody can benefit from having those done. My goal right now is to finish A, B, and C next week. Uh, do you mind if I wait on X, Y, and Z until after those are done? You know, like learning how to communicate dynamically like that with your leadership is so important to have healthy boundaries. I also tell people to block time out on their calendar, whether it's, you know, 15 minutes to go for a walk or like half an hour lunch break, like try and get a quick workout in, whatever it is, don't sit in front of the computer and work for eight, 10, 12 hours straight without taking care of yourself. Like that's, that's a recipe for disaster. Um, and then I have my non-negotiables. Like I've, I've walked away from jobs before because I couldn't work out the way that I wanted to. And some people think that's unreasonable. I, I think it's very reasonable. If your health is suffering because you're working so hard, like you need to reprioritize. And a job that pays three or $400,000 a year is not worth it if you feel like you're um, you know, headed in the wrong direction in life because you're not working out or you're not seeing your kids. So decide what your non-negotiables are and then find career opportunities that will allow you to have the lifestyle that you want. And it might not happen overnight, but at least you have a, a vision that you're working toward. Yeah. Uh, again, I couldn't, I couldn't agree more, especially those non-negotiables and, and those yeah. battle rhythm, daily tasks, whatever, like you said, working out, or even if it's just having a cup of coffee every morning with your wife before the kids get up, whatever it is, have something, establish something. And uh, I don't think it's crazy to turn something down because you can't, because if you can't bring your best self to the job, you're doing, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing the client a disservice in my opinion yeah. there. So I've, I've tried to, I've tried to say yes to everything before because yes. I've got clients in like, I've got a client in Holland right now and London and India and I've taken 3.30, 4.30 a.m. meetings. And it's like, I've been in Hawaii on vacation and taking a 3 a.m. meeting with a team in Europe. Um, and that's a good way to like burn out and hate your life, you know? So learn to say no 
but do it in a very tactful way. Absolutely. Um, just for the, for the, anybody out there who's a father listening, what's, uh, what's one piece of advice you would give them? You know, I, I've gone through seasons of working really hard and not seeing my kids as much as I wanted to, um, being, being deployed, you know, and not seeing my kids as much as I wanted to. And that's hard. I think it's okay to go through those seasons, but like, don't make that a permanent lifestyle, you know? Um, there, there are times when like you start a new job, you might be working really hard. Um, but eventually you're going to burn out. Your family's going to suffer. And I, I think it's healthy for us to go through seasons, you know, working hard is a season, taking some time off is a season. Um, if your kids are in school and you can line up, like taking an easier summer to spend more time with them, that's great. And just think about how you can engineer your life to have these rhythms uh, micro rhythms, like a daily rhythm, as well as an annual rhythm, you know, that allow you to focus on that relationship with your kids, because you're not going to get that time back. Um, once it's gone, it's gone. And my, my oldest turns 10 in two weeks. And it's scary for me to think that she's more than halfway to college already, like it flew by. And so I don't have eight years left with her, like, in some ways, I have seven or eight summers with her, you know, for us to really spend time together. So I'm going to go through a period, a season of working as hard as I possibly can uh, during the fall and the spring so that I can make the most of that time with her during the summer. Um, and just think, think about that 80-20 rule. Like, what are the, you know, the 20% of activities with my kids that are going to have the highest return on investment in terms of our relationship? and helping them develop into a, a good person. Um, so, you know, maybe I can't be there in the mornings because I'm, I'm working, but being there for bedtime is really important. And um, even though you have these highs and lows for your for work, um, there's, no, there's no summer off that's really gonna make up for you being like totally absent for the rest of the year, right? So you've, you've got to balance your days, your weeks, your months, and your year. And uh, just think about how you can engineer that to optimize for time with your family. Yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes I know I've done it before. I take for granted how um, how intelligent kids are. You know, even starting with my 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 seven year old, if I tell them why I have to miss it and actually you know have a conversation with them like that, like they're uh, not just some kid who wouldn't understand, it helps us both get through the the the. the most challenging or a challenging time. So um, great advice. And then, you know, to kind of land the plane here, if we could grow, jump in the quantum leap machine here and go back and you could see that, uh, that private, that that's, you know, just joined the Marine Corps. Uh, what would you tell yourself? What piece of advice would you give yourself, uh, you know, in, in retrospect? Yeah, man. Um, I wish I had read more. I wish I had, <laughs> I wish I had been more outgoing uh, and those might seem more, you know, kind of opposite, like reading is an, an introvert thing and uh, connecting with people is more extroverted, but I, I do wish that I had done both, you know, like you waste time and you don't even realize how valuable time is. They say, if you want something done, ask someone who's busy. And uh, I think that's so true. I'm more productive now having four kids than I was before I had kids because I realized the value of time. 
And um, I mean, I time box things like I'm going to go through my emails. I'll set a timer for, for 30 minutes and I'm racing through emails. So just realize how valuable your time is. Um, read everything you can get your hands on. Read biographies. Man, I wish I started reading biographies sooner. You know, read about James Cook and Churchill and Napoleon and Hamilton and see how they how they built these incredible careers and changed the world. Um, and they were people just like us. James, James Cook was dirt poor, became the greatest explorer of all time. How did he do that? He risked everything to enlist in the Navy and work his way up. And he did the absolute best work that he possibly could. Same thing with Alexander Hamilton, like came to the US, you know, dirt poor, worked super hard and changed this country and world history. So man, read those stories and like apply those lessons to your own life and then build relationships because the people in our lives are, are what really matter, matter. And whether you wanna be successful in uniform or in a corporate career or as an entrepreneur uh, or with your family, it's all going to come down to the relationships you have with those people. Um, I, I would have a similar, I would probably tell young Yuma to read more and he would probably look at me like I was crazy, like a crazy old man. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's so true. Uh, and I'm just curious, cause you mentioned that if you, if you were going to give, you know, if you were going to pass a book to, to yourself back then, which, what, what would it be if you could only do one? Let me see. Man, that's, that's so tough. Um, I'm going to have to go with Alexander Hamilton. You know, like a lot of people have seen or listened to the, uh, the Broadway musical, which, um, man, if there are any veterans that haven't listened to the soundtrack for the Hamilton play, like, like do that today because it's awesome. Uh, but to read a book about Alexander Hamilton, and this is this is a different Hamilton bio than um, I think the Ron Chernow one, but, and like read through the Hamilton bio while listening to the soundtrack from the play and really think about how he went from, from nothing to becoming the most trusted advisor to George Washington and like playing a significant role in us winning the revolution and then starting a legitimate country um, and, you know, see the vision that he had for his life and then apply that to, to your own life and figure out what your vision is. So that's probably the book that I would recommend um, for anybody looking for a good book. Awesome. Well, John, I, I really appreciate your time. Thanks for sharing a little bit of your story. I think there's yeah. some really good nuggets in this episode right here. Um, and I just thanks, thanks for your service, both military police officer, and then, uh, continuing to give back to the, to the veteran veteran community. I appreciate it. Thank, thanks for coming on anybody out yeah. there, uh, watching and uh, make sure you do all this stuff, you know, like share, subscribe, and, uh, we'll catch everybody on the, on the next episode. Thank, thanks again, John. Thank you so much. Love to connect with you all on LinkedIn as well. Uh, John Cobb, J O N, uh, C O B B and, uh, yeah, stay in touch. All right. It was great to be here. All right, have a good one.